Hey, Sticky Beaks, this is Jessica. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Woodfrog, Part 2. Thank you to those of you who have signed up at patreon.com backslash stickybeak and get to enjoy it a week early. We're adding a lot of goodies to the Patreon page and asking for just a $5 monthly donation to help support my work getting justice for Dory. You can also visit clovercrestmedia.com backslash stickybeak for previous episodes. And don't forget to contact me at justicefordory at gmail.com. At the end of part one of Woodfrog, Doreen was just leaving her Uncle Joe and her grandparents back in Florida to head back to Connecticut and her unknown fate. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk softly, children. Walk Joe has known Mark for a really long time, since he was about five or six when Mark married his sister Donna. And he knew Mark was never one to let other men touch Joe's sisters. Uh, a couple crazy things to where, like, uh, my sister Debbie had a boyfriend named Byrne, and um, I think he was sneaking in or something, maybe to hook up with Debbie. Yeah. And Mark heard him downstairs. This was in Danbury. I believe Mark picked up my pogo stick and, like, chased him out of there with it. I remember that, like, and it was going to whoop his ass out in the parking lot or whatever, and Burns stayed, and this is a weird situation. I remember being a kid and, and seeing that. Well, there's some story, too, where he punched Carol's boyfriend in the face. Uh, Jenny, probably, yeah, because he was a black guy. Mark was very racist. I remember that, too, a little bit. Oh, yeah? Carol's boyfriend was black, right? Oh, I, I didn't know that. Might have been Eddie. I don't know, Carol was like one of the first people to ever go out with a black guy. His, I think his name was Gary. Uh, what was his name? Eddie. I think that uh, was her first boyfriend. Yeah. Might have been another one. Back then, you didn't do that. And uh, everybody hated Carol for it. And she, not everybody, but like my dad was like having none of it. And although he grew into black people, no big deal anymore. But like, you know, back then it was different. Yeah. Same thing with the sexual abuse thing. You know, my mother fucked that all up too. And my sister's. They went to her, you know, and she, and there's other stories. Poor Carol, like, fucking guys have fucked her over all her life, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, boyfriend beat her ass, and, you know, they, you know, all my sisters have been pretty much loser magnets. I remember Mark taking my pogo stick and trying to go after her. I'm like, what are you doing with my pogo stick? <laughs> you know, it's so funny that Mark is so protective of your sisters when he was also sexually molesting them. Yeah, yeah. He didn't like Byrne. I remember that. They were, he wanted to fight him. Yeah, I remember that much. And uh, yeah, the other one too. He basically took over my family. I never even knew it. I was oblivious, but uh, he just took over my family. I guess as I when I was when I was a kid. Basically, everyone like he even fucking had my father bamboozled. He had my mother bamboozled. Amazing. Yeah. He the guy was a, a master manipulator. Very good at it. Very good. Like his brother was saying. Oh, he had a way, you know, he should be almost proud of how fucking good he was at it, or how good he is at it, how much of a bullshitter he is. He's like the greatest bullshitter I've ever seen, ever, I've ever heard of. I've never heard of anything like it, man. It's unbelievable. It's like a Charles Manson. Yeah. You know what I mean? How he manipulated people. 
You know, one of the things I've really thought about a lot recently is like how much he destroyed his his own family. Yeah, um, his mother wrote him off. Man. Yes. I knew they had written off by your own mother. What the fuck a loser is that? Christ. Joe was upset, but I pushed further. Beyond what he saw with the neighborhood boys, I asked if he'd ever had any other suspicions. I told him about Lynn, and he was surprised. Did you ever see any signs of sexual abuse? Like when you, just looking back. On who? On Doreen. She was in Connecticut after Florida at what age? You know better than I do. She went back, she must have been. Do you, say, do you think she was, you said she went down on a girl at nine years old in Connecticut before yeah. she moved to Florida? Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, that girl got no reason to lie about that. Joe is right. When it comes to these things, they either happened or they didn't. And there is no reason to lie. Pretending that these pieces play no role in this story is a gamble I'm not willing to take. It's just like pretending that the photos that Mark took of Doreen don't exist. I know I've discussed the photos ad nauseum, but they play a huge role in this case. Since I first spoke to Kate, Doreen's friend from Westwoods, in February 2019, I haven't been able to get the photos out of my head. Doreen arrived at that school, the last in a series she'd been placed in and pulled out of her whole life, in the late fall of 1987, having turned 12 that September 30th. Kate and Doreen were fast friends and would sit with a third classmate, finding companionship among the usual seventh grade jungle. Because I was new to the school, mm -hmm. and here's someone who is newer than me, we yeah. gravitated to each other. Right. You know, like she was, she was totally new, kind of. And there were clicky girls. There were some girls here that were really clicky and annoying that I didn't get along with. <laughs> there always are. Because I was the nerd, you know. And so we kind of gravitated towards each other. Kate was taken with Dorian's beauty, her bravado, her stories, how she seemed like such an adult. But underneath the show Doreen was putting on, something darker was lurking. Did she give you a sense of like where she was living at the time? Did you know where she was living? I think, I mean, I think she took turns with her parents, but I remember there being conversations about her dad. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember, it's hard to say, remembered her talking about living with a grandmother, living with a dad, living with a mom. I don't remember specifics. Okay. I kind of feel like there were discussions about being grounded. Yep. Like having fights and getting grounded or something. Okay. Again, a lot of that's normal junior high yeah. stuff. She was big into her makeup. She had always had bright lipstick on. Like bright, bright, like with that black hair and the bright lips. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. She definitely stood out. Like red lipstick? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like or bright. I don't remember if it was red, but it was bright. Yeah. Like almost like that hot pink or something, uh -huh. you know, it's flashy. I can see it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she, in um, fact, you might even be able to see her in lipstick in that picture. Oh, yeah, you can see that her lips are definitely filled in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have some, I mean, she really was, everybody says, just a beautiful, she's gorgeous, beautiful I mean, she's girl, gorgeous. you know, um, you know, even when you're talking to the family, right, like, they acknowledge, everybody says their kids are beautiful. <laughs> no, she really but was. she really was. She stood out, you know? And that's why, like, I'll see someone in a cafe. I, like I said, I saw this woman with her kids, and I saw it was like a grown-up version of Doreen. Big hair and everything, mm -hmm. just gorgeous features. And I was like, 
I mean, like I almost wanted to walk up to her and say, are you Doreen? Right. <laughs> you know? How did she strike you, like, um, religion-wise? Was that... So it's a Christian school, but not everybody who goes to the Christian school is going to be your devout yeah. type of person. So, like I said, she was always very flamboyant, like flamboyant almost about her body and boys and things like that. So it always kind of struck us like she was sort of thumbing her nose at it a little bit. Okay. You know, the morals. Like, it was no big deal to, to walk around in her underwear and let people take pictures. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to us, it was always like sort of thumbing her nose at the... At the the, the morality thing of, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, it's a Christian school, but was she acting very Christian? I can't say that she was or wasn't, mm-hmm. but she certainly was much more, I mean, for me, being the timid little girl who, you know, the goody two-shoes that would watch her, I would be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you do that. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, for some reason, I'm like thinking of Grace. I don't know why. Like, kind of, yeah. Yeah, kind of. But um, she was definitely larger than life, and she definitely kind of bragged about having run away, and she bragged about this other stuff. But she used to tell us stories that seemed so outlandish that, looking back as an adult, I now, it's very apparent there was something horrible going on. Yeah. But at the time, you know, we're kids, and we just thought, oh, she's just trying to get attention and stuff. So she used to tell us that she was a mop, that she had an agent, Mm-hmm. And that she went into the city all the time, and she had a booking agent, and she had been a model for years. Mm-hmm. And so we used to say, because we used to have conversations with her over the like over the cafeteria table, like, you let people take pictures of you in your underwear? The whole concept of, we were so shocked that she would be an underwear model. Yeah. And yeah. she was like, I've been a model since I was six years old. Like, I've done this my whole life. I've had an agent my whole life. And we just were like, that's, we were like, you let people take pictures in your yeah. underwear? Really? Like, no. And she goes, I have, an, I have an agent. I go to New York all the time. I'm being scouted for a modeling agency. And we were just like, okay. I recollect her saying, either I'm going to New York or I just got back from New York or went to New York. But it was like over a weekend okay. that she claimed she went to New York to audition for, for a contract. Did she have a problem with attendance? I think she did. Like that, like that kind of rings the bell. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you're pulling memories out of a brain from 30 years ago, so they could be fake. You know, I don't, I don't know. They yeah, could be wrong. Could be no, but that rings the bell that she was not consistently in school. But that underwear model thing is really that. That puts a real pit in my stomach. I, I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, because that was always the thing. Like. We were so shocked that mm-hmm. she would let people take pictures of her in her underwear. Was she, like, proud of it? You said she yeah, was bragging. Yeah, because she said she had an agent. And she said, I've been, she's like, I'm being scouted for a big modeling agency. And they're coming to, to like, I remember there was a weekend where she claimed to have gone to New York, like, mm-hmm. uh, like that weekend. And I don't know if she missed school on a Monday or what, but she came back at the end of the weekend. And she told us all about how it was down to her and three girls yeah. and she was waiting to hear back. You know, but she used to tell us all kinds of stories, and we were so sh- so shocked that like, yeah, how can you have an agent? Like seriously, you go to New York City? You know, it, originally she just said she was a model, and they were like, like what kind of model? And we kind of like talked to her about it, and yeah. eventually she, we were like, you let people take pictures in your underwear? She goes, yeah. She goes, that's what models do, you know. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of filling in the blanks yeah. here, but that was the gist of what mm-hmm. the conversation was. And so we were, so, like, we always kept coming back to it because we were just like, so tell us more. Posing is a word. 
Um, that's oh yeah, I mean, she would, yes. I remember her being very graphic about photo shoots, she'd call them. What do you mean graphic? Well, like positions they'd put her in. You know what I mean? We were like, you. we, we were just so shocked yeah. that she would do this. Like that was like, the kind of thing she would say. Was it like pornographic? Yeah. Or was it, yeah. Well, some of them, no. Some of them she would say that she would just like stand there, you know, and smile you know, in her underwear. And other times, like posing with like her legs open and things like that, but but with her underwear on. Yeah. Like she, she never told us she did naked shoots. But as seventh graders, in her mind, at least her story to us was that she was a professional model, mm -hmm. that she was a professional child model, and that she had an agent. Mm -hmm. When she ran away, well, what we yeah. thought she ran away, the first thing I said was, well, she was being scouted for a modeling job. And they were like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'm like, uh, she said she was going to New York, that she was getting scouted, and I, I don't know, that's what she told us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't remember who else she told, but I remember there being more than me. When we told the investigators that, or whoever we told, whoever came to ask us, we were told that it wasn't true, okay. that none of that happened. I can't remember who spoke to us. Okay. So sometime after she went missing, someone came and talked to me, to some friends. I, I can't remember if this is 30 years ago now. Yeah. But I remember telling someone, some adult, about what Doreen used to tell us. Did you see any of that underwear stuff in the newspaper? Accounts, if you Googled anything? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. And, you know, sure as anything, he's telling, he told private investigator, Doreen's mom, and the cops that he was taking photos of her. I wonder if it's because, because I remember telling people that she told us she was an underwear model, yeah. so maybe they questioned him and he admitted to it. I don't know. These days, Kate's not sure whether it was Richard Novia or a member of the Wallingford PD who spoke to her, but she was clear on what they said. No, she was told, Doreen was not a model, and there was never any Asian or fancy scouting trips to Manhattan. Kate didn't just shout her story into the void. She got an answer back, with a definite denial. This never happened. Of course, by the time I first spoke to Kate in February 2019, I had already heard all about the photos. Or rather, the stories about the photos. What they say about the person who took them isn't that hard to figure out. But for a while, their very existence remained up for grabs, with people trying their best to convince me they were some kind of urban legend. Not willing to work on faith alone, I set out to see what I could find in one of my very first stops on this journey, the Hartford Law Library. There, as the sole patron on that cold January day in 2019, I struck gold, the record for Mark's appeal of his conviction of the Silver City gun charge. The appeal's dispositive issue, the deciding judge wrote, was whether Tom Hanley's July 31, 1989 application for a search warrant for Mark's mother's house contained probable cause. And here's where I would like to give a quick shout-out to Mark and his lawyer, Michael Courtney, for pushing back. By appealing, you put all this stuff, records the police would never have given me, in the public domain for me to find. So thanks for that. The affidavit notes Mark's admission to Hanley and Detective Robert Fliss in the summer of 1989 that, yes, Mark had taken photos of Doreen. He denied, however, that there was film in the camera. In my work on this case, I've heard this story many times before. 
After Debbie and I ventured to Huntington State Park that day last March, when we heard the frogs, we headed to Jimmy's in Seven Rock in New Haven to pick up some clams and eat them on the beach. Whole bellies, duh, because we aren't savages. The day had become unseasonably hot, one of those early spring days in Connecticut where some men can't resist stripping down to tiny shorts and washing their cars for a bemused but annoyed audience. Here's Debbie, or what you can hear of Debbie, over the Muscleheads music. So she told you guys, it was after she was missing that you asked her about, asked her about the photos? Well, why, that's even weirder. Why would you take photos of her in her underwear? There's no I just told her. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you ever do no, it? Never said no, it doesn't make any sense. A liar. Very Not sure if you could make that out, but Mark had told Debbie the no film story, too. He was just messing around with Doreen, he said. That makes no sense, I told Debbie. Of course not, she replied. But Mark was adamant and arrogant. And that wasn't the only story Mark was telling to justify why he'd made Doreen pose for him in her underwear. Here are Donna, Debbie, and Carol at Donna's 60th birthday party back in January 2019. Take pictures of it? Well, it's like I was saying sometime earlier where I think it was... um, it was it's gaslighting, you know. Yes. Like he's turning it around. They're like, oh, well, oh this is gonna, what you want. Well, if you if you're gonna want to run around in a bathing suit like that, why not just put on your underwear? Mm-hmm. And why don't I just take pictures? And if that's the kind of person that you want to be, like you know, flipping it around on her, being like, you caused the well, this look what she did right with your now. husband. And I don't mean I'm not placing blame at all, but right, like. That was her causing a situation to happen because he told her that she was like that. Let's get back to July 1989 and the search warrant at Lori's. According to Tom Hanley's affidavit, Mark had told investigator Richard Novia a different story entirely, admitting that there was, in fact, film in the camera, and that he had made Doreen pose in the weeks before her disappearance. Hanley had also spoken to Roseanne Poloni the woman Mark moved in with after returning to Connecticut from California, crashing into her life like a bat out of hell. Before the police found Roseanne that summer, a year after Doreen vanished, they'd lost track of Mark for months, only stumbling across him when Roseanne called 911 to report that he was burning her clothes in a fire pit. Mark had always been taking photos when he lived with her, Roseanne said, but she'd look through his things while he was out. The police asked her to look again, but no luck. There was no trace of any photos of Doreen. Hanley was undeterred. In his application to search Lori's, he specifically noted he was looking for the following items. Medical records, personal papers, clothing, and artifacts of Doreen Vincent. 
And here was something else. Hanley wanted photographs of Doreen Vincent. According to the record, that search was successful, turning up two pictures. That was weird, because Wallingford Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, as my first contact on this case, had sworn to me up and down that the pictures didn't exist. Armed with what I had, I called him, but he still refused to come clean. So I kept pushing. I didn't understand, I told DeMeo, why the police would have specifically looked for pictures of a missing girl a year later, and then seized them. They needed pictures to see what Dorian looked like, the lieutenant told me, to aid in their search. That didn't make any sense, I said, since Dorian's maternal family had already given the police multiple photos. But DeMeo wasn't giving up the ghost. I turned to a local journalist rumored to hold clues about the case, who had supposedly seen things that no one but the cops had. The journalist, another source told me, was famously reticent about Doreen, especially the photos. The rumor is that Tom Hanley himself told this reporter about the pictures, and maybe even showed them to him. As a result, the story goes, the reporter tried to publish his scoop, only to be chastened, along with Hanley himself, after he'd left the department by the WPD. And the reporter remained a brick wall, unready and unwilling to admit that the photos existed or to tell me who had spilled the beans. But that didn't mean he was entirely silent. Do you know what Debbie and Carol claim Mark did to them? The journalist asked me. I did, I said. Well, what the police have as far as Doreen is concerned, he told me, pales in comparison to that. These days, it makes me mad that I didn't politely ask the journalist to refrain from comparing and contrasting the abusive young girls. Sensing that he was done talking, I called up Mike Bouchard, Sarah Demio's novelist and cop source, who I was just getting to know. Give it to me straight, I told him. Are there, or aren't there, underwear photos? Of course there are, Mike told me. Everyone knows about those photos. As to why the police were playing so hard to get to the point of lying to me about the picture's very existence, Bouchard made no bones about his opinion. Doreen reminds them of seven-year-old Tracy Zima, he told me, a little girl some of you might remember, that I spoke about in season one. In March 1986, a few weeks after Connie Zima reported that her daughter had been raped, Wallingford police received a call that the Zima house was on fire. Arriving to the scene, they found Tracy shot in the head. Connie was also dead, shot in her pregnant belly, along with Chrissy, the baby she was carrying. Despite a scene that raised more questions than it did answers, and ignoring evidence of a staged crime, the coroner determined that the deaths were a murder-suicide, with Connie and no one else to blame. Meanwhile, Bouchard said, they learned to treat child sexual abuse like a hot stove. That wasn't fair, I decided, to Doreen or Connie or Tracy or Chrissy. So I did what I do and kept pushing. Armed with Kate's account, along with an armload of other stories I had picked up along the way, I insisted on a meeting with Chief Wright in March 2019, convening with him, along with my husband Joe, Lieutenant DeMeo, and now Captain of Detectives, Jim Cifarelli. When I laid Kate's story bare, DeMeo scoffed. Seventh grade girls, he told me, make up shit all the time. I was surprised that my incredulous and angry stare from across the table didn't burn a hole in his uniform. 
I know you have those photos, I said, so that seventh grade girl shit sounds pretty genuine to me. Demeo was undeterred. That's gross, he told me. I don't want to talk about dads diddling their daughters. I don't want to either, I shot back. But those are the facts, and you're a cop, and here we are. Two years later, this past spring, Cola Volpe finally admitted to me that the photos were real, and that Mark had admitted taking them. Tell me where he said that, I told him. Pin it down for me. Cola Volpe leafed through the file and emailed a terse reply. In his statement, Colvope wrote, Mark said that Doreen had the desire to be a model. Mark admitted he took photos of Doreen in a bathing suit. This was a bridge too far, for a couple of reasons. First, and I can't stress this enough, but the police have the photos themselves. Facts are facts, like Colvope says, and they should tell the real story. Why should Mark be permitted time and time again to lie? I believe the photos you have, I wrote back are of Doreen in her underwear. How could Mark account for the difference between a bathing suit and underwear? I received no response, only silence. And secondly, after claiming there had been no film and asserting he'd let Doreen trade in a bathing suit for underwear, this new third story was too much. Pretending underwear is a bathing suit is different than pretending a bathing suit means you're a model. And from everything we know about Mark, he never would have let Doreen wear a swimsuit anyway. But that doesn't stop him from insisting that he was being sweet, helping his daughter realize her modeling dreams. After all, Mark has never made any bones about being very taken with Doreen, as he had been with Donna before her. Here's Doreen's grandmother, Jane. I sheltered my daughters, you know. I, I didn't want them to do go out and do stuff. You know, she was she was she used to sneak out, so <laughs> that made it hard for me. Right. And it made it, that's why she got so where she got in trouble, you know. I don't know. I, I suppose I, I don't know how to explain it, but she and then she got pregnant with this the schmuck. Yeah. The nutcase. When she had Doreen, Doreen is an absolutely beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have no idea how beautiful she was. She had blue eyes and black hair. She was gorgeous and white, white skin. It's hard to believe how pretty she was. Yeah. And I can see why he was really uh, affected by her, you know, because she was a beautiful girl. Despite his failure to report Doreen missing for three days and his absolute refusal to help look for her, that's been Mark's line for a long time, that no one loved Doreen more than he did. In Mark's world, Doreen was his princess, and he was her knight, and he would dare anyone to say anything different. And that includes me, because despite his denials, Mark's been listening to this podcast. Recently, he told Debbie that I'm a sick fuck for imagining that he'd had sex with his own daughter. Yeah, you heard right. Debbie has been talking to Mark. Funny, he never seems willing to talk about Doreen herself. He just wants to talk shit about me. And I'm not the only one Mark likes to assign blame. Back when Doreen went missing, Mark was more than willing to talk about others that might have taken liberties with his girl. One early article makes the barest mention that Doreen has a family member with a history of pedophilia. That account appears almost like an afterthought and cites no source, but I'm pretty sure that source was Mark. Because two weeks before Doreen vanished, her uncle Mike, her Aunt Debbie's now ex-husband, had showed Doreen a porn tape 
while the little girl visited her mother and aunts in Waterbury. One Doreen returned to Mark, and he found out what happened. And here, I assume, Doreen told him. He arrived back at Debbie's apartment early in the morning to scream in her face. I ought to kick his ass, Mark screamed, while Uncle Mike cowered behind Debbie in the doorway. Here's Jane. I did speak to Mark. Now that I think of it, I spoke to Mark the next day. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, what happened, you know? He says, well, she came home, and she was doing something with a plunger. She was trying to do something to herself with a plunger. Okay. And I said, what? I thought he was crazy. He says, I, I caught her in the bathroom doing that. And I thought to myself, well, how the hell did you ever get in the bathroom, for one thing? Right. Right? Right. Think about it. Normally, you go into the bathroom, you lock the door. Well, not only that, but I was thinking, like, not only should he not be in there in the first place, but, like, um, I think your daughter said something about catching her doing something in the shower, which is, you know, a slightly different story. But think about that. If you're Doreen and you're doing that and your father starts to come in the bathroom, you would stop. Right. You, You wouldn't allow yourself to be caught. Now... What Debbie said, and this made a lot of sense to me, was that Debbie said maybe she saw something, maybe Doreen saw something in that video, came home and was sexually active with Mark, or he was abusing her, and Doreen said or did something different that she had never heard from him. Exactly. That happened too. Yes, and then he said he wanted to know why she, how did you know this? Oh, what's, I don't know that story. That happened as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he said that to me. Mark said that to me. T- can you tell? I know he said that right to me, and I says, "Well, why? What was the thing? You know, I wanted to know why he went there. I didn't even know about the the movie. I had no clue about that mm-hmm. until he said it after. You know, and then I says, "Well, what made you do this?" He goes, "Well, she was in the bathroom trying to use the." A plunger. I said, oh, my God, that is, that is a, that's so painful. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds stupid. But then, you know, crazier things happen when they have sex. You know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I, I'm green to that stuff. Right. I Yo, don't know. I, like, I never heard of anything so stupid in my whole life. Well, I, it doesn't, here's the thing, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I don't think there was a plunger. I think that's total BS. And that was him. Because right. making it up. So he came over. Were you there when he came over to confront your um your son-in-law? No, no, I wasn't there then. No. Okay. It was uh, he came at like two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning or something. It was a ridiculous time. From what I, I think it was. That's how crazy he is. It was like late, early in the morning. Yeah, I think. O'clock, it was early in the morning. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like daylight or anything like that. So he really got spastic. That's what I think happened, exactly. So she knew something about the movie, and that he couldn't figure out, well, why? How did you learn this? Right. And she said it. She didn't know. She's young. Yeah. She said, I saw the movie, and that's what they did in the movie. You know, and she thought, she thought it was okay. You right. know, well, if you can do these things to me, well, I can watch a movie, you know? That ability of Mark's to say whatever he wants to Debbie while pretending he did nothing to her or to Doreen is chilling. Debbie, like her sisters Donna and Carol, has had to face a lot of BS in the past 33 years, and she is understandably pissed off. Here's a conversation she and I had driving from Huntington to New Haven to get our clams. She knew about Lynn, so I brought her up again. 
and I wanted to talk about Mike. I don't even think they had anything. That's my... Well, like, what? I have more than they do. What do they have? That's what I'm wondering. Like, You know, really? all the sex abuse stuff. And I've said to them, the woman who Doreen had a sexual encounter with, who has said to me so many times, she's like, look, I never thought of Doreen as, like, my abuser. I never was angry at Doreen. I know, she's like, you know, she just was a little girl doing something. She didn't know what it was. You know, this is what she had learned, blah, blah, blah. I never thought that she was, like, coming after me or anything like that. She doesn't really want to talk to the cops because she's like, I feel uncomfortable talking to the cops because I don't think they take sexual abuse and stuff like that seriously. But she's like, I'll do it if you think it'll help. And I've said to the cops a couple times, you know, I have when he said, oh, there's no sexual abuse in the file. I'm like, well, I have a woman who can speak to you. He's never said to me, oh, what's her name? Or, you know, can I please follow up with that girl or anything like that? Because, and that, that girl doesn't have any, or that woman doesn't have anything to say about, you know, when Doreen was doing that, she wasn't like, oh, my father taught me this. But wouldn't you want to talk to her just to see what you can get out of it? Well, I would want to talk to anybody who knew anything just like you do. You're a better detective than they are. Just, right. And that's how I am. Anybody who knew anything, I would want to talk to. Well, you know, I got to call Mike, right? That's another one. I My ex. Yes. I have to call him. God. I have to. I've been holding out because, like, you know, that's that's a shitty thing. But, like, I have to. Because I think in my head, maybe she said something to him. Take the next right. During. Wagner place. You know. Oh, I've watched it with my father. Or, you know, because I'm sure he wouldn't want to speak to you about it either, right? You didn't want to talk to no, you about we, it. No, we argued it out, but I told you, uh, I never really, I, I never really trusted him too much after that. I wouldn't. Because, I get it. you know, like, what are you doing, so, <laughs> you that lonely or whatever, I don't know, you don't want to want to sit in front of the fucking TV every day, tell me what the weather's going to be, I could care less the weather's <laughs> going to be what the weather's going to be, you know, <laughs> leaving me a sink full of dishes. I'm not lonely. You're the one who chooses to stay home. It was, so he, a, you know, to me, it was not a marriage. Is he not working? No, he works. He he works at a hospital or so. No, but when he was with you. Yeah, he was working. I I think at one point he was out on comp or something, but I don't think it was at that time. He right. watched. He watched Doreen. He used to watch her. He used to, you know, we used to watch her. Get her off this bus. Yep. You think he did anything else with Doreen? No. I don't really think he was like that. I think he just showed her the, you know, because she, because she asked to see uh, one of his porn movies. Right. And in a quarter mile, continue straight to stay on Sawmill Road. But I don't know why he would do that just because she asked. She's twelve. Right. Right. I kind of want to... That again, was on one of her visits. I don't want to... What do you mean her visits to that you guys? That was on one of her visits from her father's. And then another thing, her father was right there, again, to say, what mm-hmm. are you doing, showing her? I should kick your ass. Right. And I'm not necessarily... I don't want to talk to Mike to, to, to get him and, like, have him arrested for anything. But, like, I want to know, what was that interaction with her like? 
What did she say to convince you? She say anything about her dad? She probably has seen porn before, right? She knew what it was. I didn't even know. I don't, I don't know. You know, I don't know why you would. In a quarter mile, turn right onto Malloy Road. Yeah, that's he's, one of the ones I've been holding back on. Yeah. I mean, he didn't really have any real right to show her of course anything. Not. Of course not. Nobody did. I would have never. I mean, even me. I, I'm her aunt. I would have never done that. Of course. <clears throat> when I think of a kid's age, I don't care how interested. Is this it? Uh, Point two. I think it's up here. The next one, south. <laughs> Point one, Malloy. Oh, this is where that package store is. Take the next right on like they haven't spoken to him either, the cops. Continue like if I were a cop, I'd want to talk to him. Again, because these people that we're talking to aren't necessarily going to tell us what Mark did or why he did it, but they're going to give us a fuller picture. I don't think that the police talked to him, but we told the police about it. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it says in one of the newspaper articles, you know, there's a pedophile in the family or yeah. whatever. And Joe was like, well, that was Mark. Yes. Yeah. That was that was Mark telling the police or the newspaper people yeah. there's a pedophile in the family. Yeah. Which is projection, I think. Well, that's just getting the heat off him. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's all he's trying to do in everything he says. And there, and I don't believe that Mike ever touched her. I, I know he didn't. Um, I think he's too big of a wuss to do anything like that. Yeah. It takes a lot of balls for a guy to... Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Well, Mark has him. Mike yeah. didn't. Well, Mark also had her alienated. Just this past May, I finally took a stab at getting in touch with Doreen's Uncle Mike. In two and a half years of working on this case, I've avoided doing so with a 10-foot pole for a couple of reasons. First, while I've made a specialty out of calling strangers and throwing bombs into their laps, and then asking them to tell me their darkest secrets, this was not a conversation that I wanted to have. At all. And while I'm starting to consider myself an actual journalist, and not just an armchair detective, I'd committed a journalist's cardinal sin, forging a friendship with one of my witnesses, and I was terrified of hurting Debbie. But it was time. So finally, I typed out the following text message. Hi, Mike. My name is Jessica, and I am looking into the 1988 disappearance of your niece, Doreen Vincent. As you probably know, I have been in contact with her family, and have been working closely with your ex-wife, Debbie. I would really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and get some information. I am not trying to point fingers at anyone, and my intentions are good. I am hoping you can shed some light and help me crack this case. Can we please schedule a call? As I waited for a response from Uncle Mike, I got in touch with Uncle Joe Murad and he brought up another possibility that's been haunting the recesses of my mind for years, and probably yours, too. 
That's probably why she's not around. I, I don't believe she's in some... You think she's in some sex ring now? No. Now? She's got to be dead now. No. It's a uh, sex ring. I think that she maybe she got put in one for a little bit. Possibility. But I don't believe it. I think Mark was too overprotective of his daughter. He's the only one who wanted her. From what I hear. Oh, I know. And he wanted to beat up Mike for showing her a video, which is understandable. Yeah. Someone should Huh? I know. I'd want to whoop his ass, dude. That'd be pissing me off, dude, that that, that, that happened. I had heard this before, that just like he'd done with Donna and Carol and Debbie before her, Mark was insanely, jealously protective of his daughter. Remembering the image of Mark screaming at Debbie in her apartment doorway while Uncle Mike hid behind her, I asked Joe about the tape. And what I got was more information than I had been bargaining for. Ben, yeah, husband Mike, yeah, yes. I heard that story too, yeah. Well, what did you hear about that story? That he showed her a porn. Yeah. Mark wanted to beat him up about it. Yeah. But I don't know much more about it than that. What the fuck's wrong with that guy showing a kid to let young a porn? Although he did show me a porn well, when I was like 16 or 17. No, you know what I mean? I had already seen porn before. I had, he showed me it, though. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, that was pretty fucked up that he showed her that. You know what I mean? Well, the whole thing is like Doreen asked for it. She asked for it. She asked for it. She begged for it. She demanded it. And I'm like, she was 12. I don't care how much you beg for it. As a 12-year-old, you don't get that. But, right. Uh, it was stupid on his part, but why is she begging for it? You know what I mean? At 12. You know? Well, because she had probably seen it. Uh, I agree. Yeah, probably, had, probably from what you're telling me, had probably uh, enacted it. You know? Yeah. What I, what, uh, through Mark, you know? Sick fuck. Nothing surprised me with, this, uh, with the girls getting molested now. Yeah. I mean, Donna was molested by Mark pretty much at the 14-year-old, 20-something-year-old. Molestation now, you'd be arrested. Well... You'd be able to marry him, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, every one of my sisters has been molested by some guy, you know what I mean? If you count Donna as being molested by Mark at 14. Speaking of Uncle Mike, I still hadn't heard from him, and now I had the new information I'd gotten from Joe, that Mike had also shown him a porn when Joe was around 16 or 17. Remember, Joe is five years older than Doreen, so you do the math. Feeling a rushing in my ears, I sent another message to Mike. I am following up, I wrote, because I think it's best that you share your side of the story. Without being accusatory, I do know that you showed both Doreen and her Uncle Joe porn shortly before Doreen went missing. I understand if you think it reflects poorly, but this is an opportunity to make it right and use what you do know about her last days to help put the puzzle together and lay her to rest. I would hope Debbie would back me up. She's a good woman, and we have become friends. She and I want justice for Doreen, and I hope you will share, if you want to, your story so that we can put this to bed. Another month passed. Another month of radio silence. This June, I took my third and final stab to date. Hi, Mike. I messaged. It's Jessica again. I am following up because I am going to report on the porn watching soon, and I would like to have your take. Unfortunately, I have to report it anyway, and so it will be out there. I think it's better that you be able to have your say in the narrative so you have some control and the ability to defend yourself. As of the date of this episode, Mike has never responded. So that's where it stands for now. That's where it has to stand. 
Mike's not talking to me, and the police aren't talking to Mike, or Debbie, or Lynn, or Kate. Meanwhile, Dorian's family continues to wait and wonder. They've never had a real chance to grieve, for what they can only imagine her short life must have really been like, and how it ended. For them, the pretense of believing sexual abuse isn't a major part of the storyline, is a luxury they've never been able to afford. Here's Doreen's Uncle Joe. Now, Doreen-wise, I don't know what happened with her. It I know. sounds like she had a fucked up life, way more than I knew, you know what I mean, growing up. She kept it very quiet, very quiet to me. Never, if she would have said something to me about her, I would be like, damn, you see her? Get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. We would have been doing something about it. But, now, you I'm know. 17 or 16, and that's old enough to know that it was wrong. You know what I mean? That's fucked up. Well, she never said anything to anybody. No, she didn't. Very quiet about it, you know? Right. Unbelievable, because look at my sisters. They told their story, you know? I know, but she didn't have time. On deaf ears, but they told it. (laughs) She didn't have time. Yeah, she didn't have time, yeah. Again, here's Doreen's cousin, Mary. We talked a bit about Doreen's sister, Stephanie and what she thinks this project is about for me. And I, I don't know if you know this, but in the in the very beginning when Sarah Dimio was doing Faded Out, I mean, um, you know, Stephanie came at us pretty hard, you know, pretty aggressively because her take has always been, first of all, she thinks, you know, I'm making money on this, which is, you know, nonsense. Um, yeah. It's nonsense. And number two, she thinks I'm sort of hanging the family's dirty laundry out there for like public consumption. And I think what I've tried to explain the best I can is I'm not telling these stories like, oh, this is so salacious or, oh, this is so like, you know, dirty and fascinating. It's like I'm trying to explain that Doreen acted a certain way because she was being abused and that's a big sign of it. And, and hopefully it can prevent others yeah. from experiencing the same thing. But she doesn't view it that way, I'm sure. Well, I think she looks at it as almost like a shameful thing. Like she said to me once, Doreen was a very happy little girl who just happened to be being sexually abused. And look, I don't doubt Doreen was happy in a lot of her own ways. I think that's... Doreen compartmentalized. Of course. She learned to compartmentalize at a young age because she had to. It was a survival skill. And if you've never been in that situation or never worked with someone in that situation, you wouldn't understand. Listening to Mary, I couldn't help but think of that symphony of frogs back under the leaves and ice at Huntington State Park. Stephanie said to me at one point, I think she was texting me, she said, you know, Doreen wasn't ever a sad kid or Doreen wasn't ever a kid who had problems. She was a really happy kid who just happened to be being sexually abused. And in my mind, I'm thinking... You know, I don't think those things exist. I totally agree with you on compartmentalization. Yeah, that's the only way she she survived. You know, it's it's funny. The, the episode I'm writing now, Debbie and I went to Huntington to go look at everything, just to poke our noses around everywhere. And there were all these frogs in one of the swamps. I mean, this was like in March, so it was still pretty cold. And the frogs were going nuts. And this guy comes along and he tells us that these frogs burrow under the leaves for the winter and the the space between their organs like freezes and their blood freezes 
but their organs produce this like antifreeze. They're basically frozen in suspended animation and they stay alive through the winter and then they defrost in the spring and you know they come back to life again and it just it really kind of like haunted me because all I can think about is like all of your family has this sort of like frozen suspended animation and this compartmentalization right like there's you know and it kind of sounds like Dorian's life that's yeah she was frozen when she was with Mark and she came to life when she was around us I think she was your typical back in the day I guess it was, you know, children should be seen, not heard. And that's the way she acted pretty much around Mark. Yeah. She didn't speak unless really prompted by him. But around us, us being the cousins, she didn't stop talking. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like a a chance to be yourself, to be heard, to be free. And that opportunity wasn't necessarily given I guess I'm assuming it wasn't given when she was living with him because it was just this this freedom that she just enjoyed. And that's why she was always smiling with this contagious smile. And, you know, I mean, just the way just the air that she put off of of pure happiness. And it was just happy. to. I don't know whether it was happy to not be around him or happy to just be around family and us because there was no facade that she had to put on. If you own a business, you know how difficult it can be to get new clients. But what if you had your own sales team? BNI Somerset invites you to join us on Thursday, September 23rd to learn about how BNI Somerset provides a positive, supportive, and structured environment for the development and exchange of quality business referrals. Struggling to find more paying clients or want to take your business to the next level? Our group of business owners have passed hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of business to one another. Want to know how we did it? On Thursday, September 23rd at 8 a.m., we're hosting an event on Zoom where we show you exactly how B&I Somerset generated client after client for one another and how you could begin to apply the same simple steps to your business too. The reality is, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. BNI Somerset is incredible for building your personal brand and ensuring you are known. Join Somerset BNI's Visitor Day on Thursday, September 23rd at 8 a.m. via Zoom. All are welcome. For more info, visit bniwne.com backslash ct-northern-somerset-bni. Businesses thrive by changing when the world changes, and the world is changing. BNI Somerset can make sure you don't get left behind.